I spent the better part of the summer in Washington, D.C. At my, at my stepsister's house. And there was an older guy there that came every night and played. And we would play one-on-one. It's super humid, I remember, from that climate. And was pretty competitive against this guy as a 12-year-old. And I can just remember uh, when, when my vacation ended and I had to get back to Montana on the train, I remember looking at him and I said, now remember my name's Larry Kristoviak and someday I'm going to play in the NBA. This is the Give Me a Sense Podcast. Here's Mike Yale. Okay, Nick, thank everyone enough for continuing to send that feedback on these podcasts. Really awesome the last couple of weeks hearing a lot of these stories. Uh, um, and hearing from you guys on Twitter and Facebook at Mike underscore Yam. You can find it also on Instagram, not to mention the Facebook page, Mike Yam. If you like the shows, continue to spread that word. No doubt, I know you are going to enjoy today's show. He's the head coach of the men's basketball team at Utah. Is a second-round pick in the NBA back in 1986, coming out of Montana. And if I'm not mistaken, still the only player to be the Big Sky Conference MVP three separate times. Larry Kraskoviak joins us here on the podcast. Coach, it is great to to have a conversation with you, and appreciate you stopping by with us. Yeah, it's good to be with you, Mike. This is uh, kicking off another year, and uh, you know, another chapter, another bunch of challenges, and um, it's exciting. Just had just had practice number eight, so we're yeah. making progress. You're, you're dialed in. By the way, I made reference to uh, the Big Sky Conference uh, MVP three times. Is that still? Do you still hold that distinction? for your playing days, being the only one to, uh, to take home. That well, what was times. that? Shoot. That was like 30 years ago. Yeah. When I, when you do the math on that one, it's like, wow, where did that, uh, 30, 30 years ago? Exactly. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I, I'm guessing somebody would have told me if, uh, if somebody else did it. Um, so I'm thinking it probably still is something that stands and I, you know, I can't recall, obviously we've been, busy with the coaching and, and the NBA playing career. So I didn't stay that up on it, but my thinking would be, uh, you know, it was kind of a, kind of a rare deal. So it's, it probably still stands. You I don't just have a trophy. People. I don't have a trophy or anything that I have in my office. Uh, but one of my favorite sayings is that everybody's got a scrapbook and, and that's one of those things that occasionally with, uh, with people like yourself, bring it up. So we don't talk about it a whole lot. Hold on. So you get though you you you're like a conference player of the year essentially three times. They don't give you like a trophy or a plaque or anything that recognizes that back in the day. Well, I think my wife has probably found a way to get it into the trash bin um, <laughs> if there was something. I do recall there being a a little trophy, you know, on an annual basis that you get for the Big Sky MVP. But we've moved so many dang times that, uh, you know, you just keep raising the, the probability that something like that's going to break off. And um, so I don't know. I think it might might still be in a box somewhere in our storage unit. Uh, okay, that, that makes me feel better because, as you know, being, you know, a, a basketball coach at this point, it seems like everyone gets a trophy for just participating in a lot of ways. So <laughs> for you to, yeah. to be the conference player of the year and not get something. So that actually makes me feel a little bit better. By the way, I, I'm glad you, you brought up your wife. I, I was reading as I was preparing because I, I want to 
like I said, I'm glad you came on. I'm not really going to even ask you just sort of about about the upcoming season or your team. It's it's kind of just to get to know you get to know you great. a little bit better. Yeah, but great. I I had read that uh, an interesting story about how you met your wife initially. Yeah. Can what yeah. was what's the story? Because the version that I heard was more from her, and I want to see if your version of it actually coincides. Well, man, I hope it's the same story. I don't think there was any alcohol involved, so we should have it pretty pretty dialed in and collaborate our story. But um, I was playing for the Bucks, and uh, one of my teammates just so happened to be a Montana graduate as well, John Stroder. Um, that's a little trivia that people probably didn't realize is he and I were on the same team in Milwaukee, uh, same time, two Montana graduates. and. And John was dating our secretary with the Bucks, and they were hooking me up on some kind of blind date. Uh, we we played a game, and uh, we had to fly out the next morning for a trip, and they were trying to get me to go out to this sports bar across from the old uh, Bradley Center. Yeah. And I didn't want to go. And I can remember the conversation with those guys like it was yesterday. They were... They were uh, you know, come on, we got to go. And I said, no, uh, you know, I think we won the game, but we had an early flight. So I was him hawing around and trying to get out of it. And so I finally gave in and went. And uh, I kind of had forgotten that I was on a blind date, that I was supposed to be meeting somebody there. So I walked in and, uh, and you know, got a beverage and was kind of hanging out. And I noticed this real attractive blonde in the back playing darts with the group of guys and uh, kind of watched that take place for a while. I'd never played darts in my life. And um, and I was really quite shy when it came to, you know, being, uh, usually I had a pair of socks in my mouth when it came to trying to talk to pretty girls. And I don't know what came over me. And I walked up to her and I said, hey, I'll, uh, I'd like to challenge you to a game of darts, and whoever loses has to cook the other person dinner. And um, and so we played the game of darts, and she kicked my butt. And uh, we spent a couple hours together that night visiting. And and um, so that was the start of our whole date. I just happened to have some friends of mine from Montana in when it finally made sense to have her over for dinner. And she still couldn't figure out what why we didn't all eat at the same time. And um, so I cooked up some pork chops, which was kind of my go-to, um, and served my two buddies first for dinner. And then her and I dined about an hour later. And she uh, she wondered about that. And I uh, the, the stark reality with that was that I only had two plates and two sets of silverware in my apartment. <laughs> and so I couldn't do a dinner, couldn't do a dinner for four. She thought it was pretty strange. And then, um, uh, that was the beginning of it, man. Yeah, that wow. was, uh, we dated for a couple of years and then uh, we broke up. I knew that one of two things was going to go haywire, that I wasn't equipped to, to be married uh, successfully and be a professional athlete at the same time. And um, so we broke up. We broke up for seven years, actually. And then wow. um, right at the end of my career, I was playing my last season in Paris, France and, and started writing her a few letters. And we got reacquainted, and and we always joke now about how we got divorced before we ever got married. And we, there's no doubt that our our marriage wouldn't have lasted. We had both changed so much, and uh, funny how 
things worked out, but real fortunate that she she remained single the whole time and was still available when I finally when I finally woke up. Was that similar to the story she gave you? Yeah, it, it actually is. It's pretty on point. Uh, and I guess I shouldn't say I'm, I'm all that surprised, although I think it's interesting. <laughs> you know, Larry, we've had guys like Eric Allen comes to mind and Jake Plummer a couple weeks ago on this show. Uh, Kevin Connor, yeah. Sports Center anchor, and they they make references that are a little dated. And all three of the references that they've thrown out there are VHS tapes, and people don't necessarily, <laughs> you know, I think some younger people. I mean, EA didn't even know, forgot that it was called a VCR. He was calling it the VHS machine. Okay, so that goes to show you how yeah. long it's been. But you just said something that I think in some ways dates yourself because you said, "Hey, I'm playing overseas and I'm writing letters." Right? I mean. Who writes letters yeah. anymore? It's an, it's email now. So I just it's it just kind of yeah. it's interesting. Some of the the younger audience well, right now, that's old school. Yeah. No, that's what they would you say. Know, and you'd say that's just I, how I it was. I remember I yeah I had a prepaid. I didn't have a cell phone. Um, you know, a lot of this area was no cell phone. So you're you're over there and you got a calling card. And you know, also with the with the situation that it was, um, you know, I you're kind of. I don't know, isolation, I guess, and uh, winding down the career. And I just felt like there was a lot of things that could be said a lot easier in a letter, um, you know, and kind of explain yourself and, and explain to somebody uh, with actually having, without having to converse with them. But, you know, amazing how time changes now. I mean, somebody, we got to do something. I've got my kids at home and they're constantly on their phones and we're going to have some neck issues, I can tell you, because it's just like it is not posture healthy to to look at these kids. It's almost like they've got extra vertebrae now to be able to, to tilt their heads over, to be able to look at their phones. But, you know, you watch your basketball teams and different. I, I was in a restaurant the other night and I was looking at a couple that were on a date. And I don't know if 10 words were said between them. You know, they were both. They weren't playing darts. They, they actually might have been texting each other while they were sitting at the dinner table because it sure didn't look like they were having much fun. So time yeah. has changed and, uh, you know, it's a new generation. So, Coach, I want I want you to take me back a little bit. We're going to go further back because you made reference to playing in the NBA and then playing overseas. And I think people realize that you've had a lot of success as a basketball coach, NBA, obviously now at Utah as well. But you, you were an accomplished basketball player. So at what point do you realize growing up that that you're pretty good, that that you can play and then play at a high level and then eventually go to the NBA? Well, you know, that's a good question. I mean, nobody I don't think ever has been from Montana uh, that has grown up in Montana and went on to the NBA. And, you know, you just you've got a million people in the whole state uh, from the time I was I was so fortunate as a young man. We lived in a mobile home in the west side of Great Falls, Montana, and it just happened to be across the street from uh, some really good basketball players that were playing on CMR High School, uh, Charlie Russell High School team. And they were sophomores, and they were all starting for this high school team, and they were my idols. And they had a great half court. It's still intact today. Every time I go back there, I drive to that neighborhood and the court was, I mean, it doesn't have a crack on it. Whoever poured that thing and the basket, uh, was incredible. But I used to, I remember uh, getting up at the crack of dawn, especially on Saturdays and watching some cartoons, having a bowl of cereal. And I'd go over and hang out at that court 
and sometimes you could get your own age group guys to play with you. But my hope was always just to uh, to continue hanging out there until the older kids showed up. And then I always just prayed that there would be an odd number, you know, and that they couldn't match up against themselves and that they needed the young little whippersnapper to jump in. And, and so I was playing with those guys. I got a trophy, Mike, uh, when I was eight years old. My first trophy was at the Optimus basketball contest where you you had a you shot free throws and you dribbled and you had a passing thing. And I got second, I got the silver trophy. And, uh, I, you know, I, I mean, that was, that's where I found my joy and my pride and kind of related to people was through basketball. Um, the next time that comes to mind was in 1976. When you ask about when I started thinking about it, um, I spent the better part of the summer in Washington, DC at my, at my stepsister's house. And there was an older guy there that came every night and played. And we would play one-on-one. It was super humid, I remember, from that climate. And was pretty competitive against this guy as a 12-year-old. And I can just remember um, when, when my vacation ended and I had to get back to Montana on the train, I remember looking at him and I said, now remember my name's Larry Kristoviak, and someday I'm going to play in the NBA. And that was more of a wishful thinking kind of comment. I didn't really think it was going to come to be. But I sure knew I was passionate about it. Um was really fortunate. I think one of the turning points was when I was playing in college at the University of Montana for Coach Montgomery. Uh, he was real instrumental in getting me invited to the National Sports Festival as a, as a freshman in college. And uh, I made a U.S. team that went to Spain and we won a gold medal. Uh, and then the following summer I played at the world university game. So I had three consecutive summers, um, that I spent an awful lot of time playing against not only our country's best players in practice sessions, but going over and, and winning gold medals for the U S and that's when, you know, after each one of those summers, I started coming back to Montana as time went on and I was improved, you know, and I gained confidence from playing against that kind of caliber of competition and, uh, started to daydream and think that, you know, maybe there was going to be a chance at some point that I could, I could actually do this for a living. What, when you get drafted, knowing that, you know, at the age of 12, you're saying to yourself, man, you know, it's kind of a throwaway line, but you, it's, it doesn't come out of nowhere, right? I mean, there's a seed that's planted and then you're playing uh, out of the country. You're matching up against some of the country's, uh, best players. When you actually get drafted, what's that experience like for you? Well, it was a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a disaster, actually, as it all went down. I uh, obviously it was an anxious time, um, and the night before the draft, the Portland Trailblazers called me at my brother's house and said, and they had the twenty fourth pick in the draft. I think there were only twenty four teams in the league at that time. Yeah, twenty before they expanded to six more teams. So. They had the last pick of the draft being the best team uh, record-wise the previous year. And, you know, Clyde the Glide and all those guys. um, And they called and said, hey, we want you to sleep really well tonight because the worst-case scenario tomorrow um, is we're going to take you with our first pick as our first-round pick. So, you know, all of a sudden I just went bonkers. And, you know, we rented a hot tub, I remember, uh, invited friends and family, and it was on ESPN. The first round was on ESPN. 
and it was an exciting time. So we got ready for this big celebration, and then they come to pick 24, and you know the Portland Trailblazers select uh, Arvidas Sabonis, and so we're all kind of sitting around the TV, just you know, like what what just happened? Um, they picked three more guys. 20 pick 25 26 and 27 and then ESPN went off the air and uh, so we're all kind of sitting in my brother's backyard and looking at each other like what just happened and then I was called um, you know about five minutes later and the Chicago Bulls had actually selected me with the 28th pick and uh, and literally the next day I was traded to the Portland Trailblazers so I was excited, you know, kind of going full swing back to where I thought I was going to go. And, and being from Montana, that sounded great. Being on one of the top teams in the in the NBA and being probably the closest city from from Montana. So uh, a week went by, and I called the Trailblazers and I said, "Hey, am I supposed to be at some camp? You know, what's the schedule for the summer?" And and the lady on the phone told me, "Oh." You've actually been traded to San Antonio. We just haven't had a chance to announce it yet. It's not legal to announce the trade. And so, you know, you go from being on top of the world uh, and all of a sudden you realize what a business it is. And so within that first week, I was the property of three different teams. And, and of course, that was when San Antonio was horrible. So uh, I went down there as a, as a rookie and and you know, kind of paid the dues to get the Tim Duncan, David Robinson ping pong balls in the lottery. And uh, so, you know, it didn't exactly go as planned, uh, but certainly was a dream come true uh, to answer your question. And, you know, something that uh, to have that all come together and and be a part of it, it just wasn't quite the the romance novel or the excitement that a person was looking for at that time. Larry, how does NBA life change from that rookie season to the time you decide not to play professionally anymore? Well, I mean, for me, it was it was really a lot to do with injury. You know, I was I, I was fortunate as a rookie. Um, we had a rebuilding team. Uh, Artis Gilmore was in his final year, and and Johnny Moore. Uh, Alvin Robertson was probably the best player on the team, and they realized at the All-Star break that um, that the veterans weren't going to do it, and they made a complete change to going with uh, with all these rookies. So I started for about half of the season as a rookie. So, you know, having talked about the disappointment and maybe playing on a worse team also gave me an opportunity to get out when a lot of other rookies aren't playing much. And I started with Johnny Dawkins in the backcourt and Walter Berry and Kevin Duckworth, who's since passed away. Uh, and I played, you know, dang near 40 minutes a game and, and really put myself in a position where I was noticed and, and became a veteran fairly quickly. And then, um, year three of my NBA career, I suffered a devastating knee injury where I blew my ACL and my MCL and blew up the whole cartilage capsule. It's called the terrible triad. Um, and so then it, you know, ch shift gears. You go from starting and I was scoring about 13 points a game and nine rebounds and they were just getting ready to tear up my contract and and pay me a heck of a lot of money. And then in the playoffs, the semifinals, Eastern semifinals, um, I had that injury take place and then it became more about survival, Mike, just, um, you know, trying to get back and, uh, and playing. And, and I played three more years in Milwaukee 
and then I played a season, uh, got traded to the Jazz, uh, went to Orlando for a year, and then Chicago. So I played on some great teams and was still able to start a lot of those games and played with great teammates and played for great coaches. Um, but my mindset shifted dramatically from you know, a long-term career to really trying to make one more year out of it. Um, and it was sad when it all wound down that I just, you know, my brain and my heart were in the right spot, but my body wasn't cooperating. So I managed to, to get nine years in the NBA and played my final season, as I said earlier, in, in Paris, France. Is that the time later in the career dealing with the injuries? Is that when the coaching seed got planted in your, in your mind? It did, but I can't uh, honestly say that I, you know, was was planning on being a coach. Um, I did know this that, it, like my season in Chicago, for example, um, I had an emergency appendectomy and had all kinds of crazy things on top of the knee that went wrong. And Phil Jackson um, was kind enough, and I don't know if he thought maybe I had a chance to coach or whatever, but. I was still playing for them and he would call me into the coaches meetings and, and I would be a part of those coaches meetings before practice. And he actually made me a scout um, when we were in the fi in the playoffs the year that Michael Jordan came back uh, from baseball and we, we got beat by Orlando. But uh, I wasn't an active player on the roster, but he sent me out on the road uh, doing advanced scouting. And then when I'd come back to Chicago, I'd sit in on these meetings and um, you know, I really started thinking about it. And I think more than anything, it was the good fortune of, of playing for a guy like Phil and playing for a guy like Jerry Sloan here uh, in Utah and, and being teammates with Shaq and Penny and, you know, just an amazing opportunity. The, the downside was I was a one-year free agent for three straight years, but the good part was that I was around some great minds and some championship-caliber teams uh, and, you know, I, I got, came back, got my degree from Montana, um, was in the financial advising business for a while. I got a real estate license and thought I was going to sell, sell real estate. And so I wasn't really thinking about coaching, but then my heart kept calling me back to it. And, uh, and then I realized that that that's, you know, not only what I loved, but it's really about the only thing that I knew. And so I, I got back in, in college at Montana and started the, the whole coach, coaching, uh, you know, the coaching the number of years at different places and started making climbing my way up. I want to circle back because you just made reference to Phil kind of bringing you in there. That wasn't something you – into the coach's room wasn't something you initially asked him. You ever ask him why he did that? You know, I, I never did. Um we just had a dinner together in, in New York City a couple of months ago. Um, you know, that's going to be one of those things. I think, you know, if I were putting words in his mouth, it was um, he was the one that had to give me the bad news that I wasn't being uh, placed on the active roster for the playoffs that year. Um, I was traveling with the team, and I think uh, maybe part of it was sympathy, just not wanting me to have to you know, uh, melt away and, and end it that way. And so he, maybe I was a little bit disengaged from our team at the time because I wasn't an active player. And then he had it in the goodness of his heart to bring me in and make me feel like I was part of the coaching, uh, you know, brotherhood. Uh, you know, maybe it was that he thought I had a chance to coach, but that that's a real valid question that I should probably pick his brain and, 
and see if you'll give me an honest answer next chance I get. Larry, you made reference to some of the teams. I think you mentioned some of those players, Shaq, Penny, you threw out Jordan's name. Obviously, Phil was there when, when you were there with the Chicago Bulls and the run that they went on. Who were some of those players that you admired, not necessarily for what they did on the basketball floor in the games, but it was what was happening away from basketball practice time, film study, whatever yeah. the case may be, because th- those are some big-time players that you were around. Yeah, you know, I at the people that come to mind, and I was my second year in the league, I got traded to Milwaukee, um, and Milwaukee was really good at that time as well. And um, and when I showed up in Milwaukee, I didn't really learn how to be a pro. I I shouldn't say when I was in San Antonio, there wasn't great leadership there. Um, but when I showed up at Milwaukee and was inserted in the starting lineup as a power forward, uh, guys like Sidney Moncrief. Uh, Jack Sikma, Paul Pressey, um, those guys, Ricky Pierce, those guys come to mind as people that really tried to instill a culture in you, you know, and it, it, uh, if we were going to be the Bucks and this is how we did it here and this is how we worked and you're professional and, you know, you were taking care of business on, on all aspects. So I'm real thankful for that group of guys that I played with. And then, um, you know, you see a correlation between all-star type of players uh, and their work ethics. And, and I paid close attention to what makes guys tick. And, and like my year in, in Utah with John Stockton and Carl Malone, you know, I used to always take a lot of pride in being the hardest worker on the team. I was going to put more time in than anybody when it came to weight room and practice and being on the court. And I even got extra massage, whatever I needed to do to be ready to play. And I'll be danged if a guy like Carl Malone, after he would play a bunch of minutes and it would be an off day and most of vets were taking time off that he, you know, he'd be the only other guy in the workout room with me. And you could realize that there's a reason that he's an all-star and, you know, you're, you're involved with that caliber of player the year in Chicago with Pippen and Jordan. And you see what makes those Steve Kerr, um, you know, being around those guys. And then I was in Orlando when Shaq was young and Penny Hardaway was a rookie. And it was pretty neat because I could, I spent a lot of time with those guys and I did my best to teach them how to be a pro when they were coming in. And so you kind of pass the torch down from, from one class to the other. But man, if you could go back in time, it's really kind of in my mind, and maybe it's just because I experienced it, but Uh, It was kind of the golden years that baseball had their golden period with the mantles and DiMaggio. And, you know, um, you you had that phase and it was a special time to be a baseball player back then. Not that it isn't now, but it just uh, kind of the golden years. And I really look back on the era, uh, you know, when I played and it was against some tremendous players. And when you look at the NBA's 50 greatest players, I've actually got a piece of artwork here in my office. and you know, there's about 30 out of the 50 that I played in the same time period. So it was a pretty special time uh, to be a part of it and, and something I really feel blessed and fortunate to, to have had uh, an opportunity to participate in. I couldn't agree with you more. That era was, um, the talent was amazing, the, the true big man, and there was a slew of them. I mean, that center position is just different back then versus what it is now in the NBA. Right. I'm going to dork out for 
for just a second here because Penny was a was a guy. I mean, I'm such a big NBA fan and, and grew up watching all these guys that you're making reference to. Penny was one of my favorite players growing up. And I think, you know, I think ESPN recently did their 30 for 30 series on on Shaq and Penny and like what could have happened there. I think they did a really yeah. good job of of giving younger fans that maybe didn't know about Penny but didn't realize pre-injury can you just put into into context and perspective for for people just how special he could have been had he stayed healthy yeah that's you know that's the the million dollar question um but you know as far as talent goes size a feel for the game athleticism uh, actually coach Slocum DeMarlo Slocum on our staff uh is in your category too and he's to this day says that Penny uh, was his favorite player of all time and, and you know, had a potential to be a Michael Jordan kind of guy uh, had he not experienced some of those injuries. But he just had the whole package, you know, the whole physical package and the God-given package combined with the mental aspect, you know, where he understood what work was. There's an awful lot of super talented players that don't get the mental side. and uh, And there's an awful lot of super mentally strong, hardworking guys that just aren't blessed with the physical ability. And so uh, to be able to combine that, you know, all of those, uh, all of those areas into one player was Penny Hardaway. And, um, you know, it was a shame whatever happened, but he, he made the most of it, man. He was a fighter and, and, and really helped get the Orlando Magic franchise going. It was fun watching him come in as a freshman. It was or a fre- not a freshman, but a rookie. Um, I'd been in the league, I think, eight or nine years at that point. And, and here comes Penny, and we spent a lot of time together. And I tried to help him, like I said, like Sidney Moncrief tried to help me. Um, but he was, he was one of those special guys, no doubt about it. Larry, I don't want to keep it too much longer, but you, I know you were obviously in Milwaukee. You, you coached that team. Were, correct me if I'm wrong. Was Michael Red on your squad? Did you have him? Yes. Yep. Yep. Okay. Michael Red, Bogut. Yep. Oh, for sure. All right. So I get into arguments with people all the time because people will talk about Steph Curry. They'll throw out Ray Allen's name. Uh, Mark Price, I think you can throw his name out there. How, how does Michael – I always say that Michael Red is one of the greatest shooters I've ever seen in my entire life. Quick, quick, quick release. How? What, what was your take? If I throw out those names like Curry and Price and, and Michael Red and Ray Allen, where, where does Michael Red in your mind fall from a shooter's well, he, ability? No, I mean, you know, I, I don't, it's really hard to get into those different eras, you know, and you hear this conversation all the time. Would the Bulls beat the Warriors? Uh, and yes. I think a lot of it, and I, I use, I use the analogy. Um, it's like music, you know, it's like music. Who, who, is, who are the greatest rock bands of all time? Well, uh, my generation is not going to flash forward to the modern day rock band and being, it's always going to be you know, the, uh, the prime time of when you experienced it and when you had the most, you know, when you were the most influential and the greatest memories and all those types of things. So I, I can say this, Michael Red, without a doubt, is one of the top five shooters uh, that I've ever seen. I think one area, when you make comparisons to uh, a Steph Curry or a Ray Allen, is that Michael Red was identified on our team that I coached at Milwaukee uh, he, he was pretty much the first guy on the scouting report. And so I think, uh, you know, if if Ray Allen was the best player on his team or Steph Curry was the best player on his team, 
I think you you can find a way to kind of you know stick a screwdriver in that machine and keep it from from working. Um, where those guys are really blessed is that they're surrounded by other all-star caliber players, and if you can if you can shoot, you're going to get some open shots because you've got the talent that Ray Allen played with at Boston, for example. Uh, and Mike never really had that uh, ability to be a third or fourth uh, option on a team. He was always a guy that was taken out of everything. But, uh, you know, stand in there, uh, whatever kind of contest you wanted to have, a game of horse, uh, first guy to 20, whatever, I'd put him up against any of these guys. Uh, probably just wasn't, you know, on as good a team as some of those players you mentioned were, were uh, fortunate to play for. Larry, what's the difference between coaching NBA guys and college players? Well, two two things come to mind is uh, first and foremost needs needs to be mentioned because it's why I'm so fond of doing what I'm doing now is I think I think college is the perfect level if you want to be a coach. Um, in that, uh, I coached high school, I coached minor league, I coached NBA, I coached college, so I've experienced all of it. Um, high school, if you're coaching at that level, you know, maybe you don't have the talent level you've got, you know, maybe no disrespect. Maybe you got four football players, two baseball players, and they're all playing basketball because that's what they're supposed to do. But you might only have one, two or three guys that are really serious about hoops on your high school basketball team. So they're not really giving you a fair crack at it, at doing what you want to do and trying to help them reach their potential. Uh, then you get to the NBA, uh, and it's all about you know winning games, uh, far less practice. Uh, obviously, you don't recruit. I used to say when I was coaching Milwaukee that it'd really be nice to have some control over who we coached. And then, lo and behold, you better be careful what you wish for because when you're in college, you are responsible to find the guys that you coach. You know, it's kind of the good news and the bad news at the same time. Um, but the majority of players in the NBA have already had their mentors and they're difference makers, um, which is a good thing. But as a coach, I really want to have a part in that process. And so that's where college to me becomes perfect is you get kids that are really committed to hoops and getting their degree that want to come to college. Sometimes they've got great backgrounds, you know, families, uh, you know, your traditional family, and you don't have to provide that spark, uh, maybe with other kids, single family homes and so forth. And so to be, to be a part of that and know that these kids are leaning on you is probably the most uh, exciting part of the job for me. Um, and then, you know, uh, a big part of it, I think parents leave you alone in college. You know, I've had a couple parents that wow. want to get involved with what we do. Um, but you get into the NBA and you've got agents, you know, you've got, uh, I remember we started our year out in Milwaukee. Uh, we were eight and two one of the surprise teams in the East and we had a nice little rotation and then we lost at home to the Clippers and we were heading out uh, on a long, a week long road trip. And before I got done with media, I had like three players out in the hall and they all wanted to have a meeting. And you know, what, what do you guys want to have a meeting about? You know, and, and they, it was all playing time. And then agents wanted to be on conference calls. And so the first moment of weakness with your team, losing a game that you shouldn't have, that's when they wanted to talk about how they should be in the rotation. And so, you know, it's a lot of outside pressure um, dealing with that. You really have to have a strong locker room and you need to have a, 
you know, a strong ownership group that's willing to to keep you away from those conversations. You know, really, that was maybe the biggest headache was uh, it, you reach that pinnacle of being in the NBA and everybody wants to play. And it's hard if you don't have Popovich's pedigree and Tim Duncan's leadership skills to keep all that in order for you. And it became quite distracting. Larry, I know the season is is about to get underway. Um, we've had Rich Rodriguez and Mike Leach on. You're the third coach I've had on this show. I asked the other two, you know, their favorite recruiting story or go-to football story, and as you can imagine, knowing those guys, they they uh, they had some fun with it. So I'll, I'll ask you the same thing on the basketball side before we let you get going. Is there this moment that stands out to you on the recruiting trail or a go-to basketball story, whether it's your playing days or your coaching days, that stands out to you? Oh, man. See, Mike, you should have given me a little notice on that. I, I could have dreamed yeah. up a good one for you. Well, the beauty of this uh, is it's taped, so you I can edit out all the all the dead space in between as you're trying to figure out what story you want to go to. But I, and and look, Rich had a great story about uh, knocking on the wrong door of the next door neighbor of a recruit that uh, he was trying to go and get, and had a had a really had a good conversation with a, a complete stranger, and and was you know talking about Johnny who lived next door, and uh, Mike Leach is went Mike Leach on me uh, is essentially what happened on, on his edition. So um, you can, I'll let all the people decide if they want to go and listen to uh, to that uh, edition of the of the podcast. But because I got to think with all of your experiences, I mean, I, I'd love and like I said, I know the season's coming up against this next time I'm in Salt Lake City. If you're cool with that, I'd love to sit down with you. Just talk about your NBA stuff, because I'm a huge NBA fan. And, and you've been around some of the iconic players. You mentioned, uh, you know, the, the the top 50. I remember when the the NBA even released that. All those guys that I grew up watching, you got an opportunity to to be around a lot of those players and and uh, and be teammates with some of those. So I'm sure you have a ton of great stories. So hopefully no, I bought you enough great. time rambling uh, <laughs> to, to come up yeah, with something. Yeah, well, the, the one when you talk about knocking on the wrong door, uh, the one that just comes to mind, um, it just happened about a month ago. So I fly out to, uh, and this is how bad I am because I just. I actually knocked two states off that I'd never been to before, New Hampshire and Vermont. Wow. Uh, it, I've only got two left on my list that I haven't been to. Um, and so here I, I'm a fish out of water flying out there, and I don't even know the airport that I flew into, Hart, Hartsfield, uh, somewhere up uh, maybe. You somewhere in Mass, Massachusetts. They, uh, look at me. It's like people from that area trying to navigate Montana. Um, so anyway, I land, uh, I've been given the directions to, uh, the hotel that I'm staying at and I'm supposed to go to the Hartsfield Inn. Uh, uh, it's an old bed and breakfast. And so, uh, I punch it in my phone. I know that it's a two hour drive. And, um, so I'm typing and I'm making recruiting calls the whole drive. I'm not paying any attention to where I'm going. I get there. I called the coach and I said, hey, I'm kind of having a hard time finding the inn. It looks like it's closed down. He says, no, it's open. Here's the address. So I got out of the car and I walked around this old bed and breakfast. It's all nailed up and had been converted to something else. So I call him and I said, can you give me the address again? And he gives me the address. Uh, no, I text him. He texts me the address. I punch it into my Google Maps and it says uh, that I'm two hours and 30 minutes away. And oh. so I'm thinking, I'm thinking it must be on the walk icon. 
you know, like sometimes it gets over to how long it's going to take you to walk there. And so I look at it closer. Sure enough, it's the car and I'm in the wrong state. Um, So after driving two hours from the airport to this bed and breakfast, and there just was coincidentally this bed and breakfast that was named the same thing. Uh, So then after I got there, I ended up with close to three more hours driving to uh, to where I needed to be in Vermont. And so I, I told the, uh, the prep school coach to let, let's make sure that we just keep that our little secret that I didn't <laughs> need that to be out there. <laughs> uh, but now I just blew it. So, uh, where, where's, that's where's not the one trip? of my strengths. Worth huh? the trip? Was it worth the trip? Well, we're still, we're still in play. We're still trying to, to get the kid, but, um, you know, you just, what? you get a little bit overwhelmed on an off day to go out recruiting and, um, that's one that comes to mind. If I think of something down the road, we can retape something in the future. I absolutely love that. And I, the one thing I do know, Coach, if you were able to, to make your way, uh, at least on the other side of the country, it speaks volumes to you being able to, to go to Austria and, and land uh, an NBA player uh, who is obviously the, uh, one, of the, one of the best players that we've seen the last couple seasons in the Pac-12 conference. So I know your program is willing to go and do whatever it takes to get some of the best talent uh, on the planet to head to Salt Lake City. And your resources yeah, well, there, by the way, out. are pretty incredible, too. The brand new facilities that you guys are, are rocking there, sort of a secret gem on the West Coast with uh, what Utah has in store. Larry, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I can't thank you enough because I know the season is, uh, is right around the corner. You guys are in the throes of it in terms of getting ready for it. So appreciate the you time. Bet. And off season, I, I'm telling you, I'll make the trip to Salt Lake City to talk some NBA with you. Sounds good, buddy. Good to be with you, Mike. Jakob Pertl, the player that I was making reference to that Larry was able to go and get overseas in Austria and, and really a fantastic job Coach has done with that program. I, I know Larry told a lot of stories about his time in the NBA, what it's like to be a coach. I, I want to let people know when he took over that Utah program at Pac-12 Network, we used to do a coaches show where every other week you get an opportunity to talk to you know the coaches in the conference. We had six one week, six the next week, and it just sort of alternated. And Larry's team was was really struggling when he took that program over. I mean, they had a bunch of JUCO guys just to fill out the roster in that first season. There was an exodus. Uh, players decided to transfer. You know, after the coaching change and. I I remember them struggling so bad, and Larry would come on to do these interviews. And I know this doesn't sound like a big deal to people, but trust me, it is when you're working in this industry. And and coaches, when they lose, they they don't want to talk. When players lose, they don't really want to talk. And Larry would always come on the show and have this awesome disposition about him. And I remember thanking him at the end of the season. Uh, They they had struggled. I don't even remember how many wins they had. It it, it was less than 10. I mean, it was definitely single digits. Call it six, seven wins. I don't even know if it was that many. They had a rough first season. And I remember thanking Larry at the end of the basketball season for coming on and just kind of making it easy, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. Never had a bad attitude, never gave me a problem coming off of a loss. And you said to me, Mike, this is a bad year but it's not going to be like this and it's going to change real soon. And he is exactly right. He has really turned down that turned around that program in Salt Lake City. So truly uh, one of the good guys that we have on the West Coast and, and really do appreciate him stopping by. And remember, there are obviously some other coaches. we got some Pac-12 guests that have been on this podcast. And I can't thank everyone enough for listening. 
You can find me on social media if you got some ideas at Mike underscore Yam on Twitter and Instagram, not to mention the Facebook page is Mike Yam. It's been really cool to see the show continue to grow more and more listeners every single week, which is just awesome for me. Um, you know, don't have that big podcast network pushing out this show. So well, I know I've made reference to that grassroots effort. It's slowly growing here. And a lot of it has to do with you guys continuing to uh, to listen to the show. So if you can continue to do that, rate, subscribe, review on iTunes. You can like it on, on those other platforms, whether it's TuneIn or Stitcher or even Blog Talk Radio, wherever you find the show. Uh, and the most important thing is if you like it, tell a friend, share it on social media. The more it spreads, the more you guys push it out, um, you know, just the cooler it is, at least for me. I know that sounds kind of selfish, but uh, it's been great to have a lot of these guests on to tell some of these stories. And remember, all the episodes, if you're just joining us and it's the first time you've listened to the show, keep in mind, every single show that I do for this podcast is kind of like the one I did with with Larry just now. doesn't matter if you listen to this episode three months from now or any of the other shows. They're all evergreen. It's all great stories. They're all personal stuff. I never really ask anything that essentially would uh, would date the show. So uh, I encourage you guys to go back and check out some of the other great guests that we've had on this podcast. But once again, thanks for sharing. Hopefully you continue to do that. And if you have any feedback, you can hit me up at Mike underscore Yam on Twitter. Thanks so much again.